Welcome to the Inspired by Adventure podcast, bringing you the adventure across the airwaves. Hello, welcome everyone to another episode of Inspired by Adventure podcast. My name is Cole Watkins. I am your host. And today we have a very impressive uh, gentleman joining us by the name of Don Mann. How are you doing today, Don? Great, Cole. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I, I'm I'm really floored by uh, the research I've done on you and 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 how much of a uh, impressive uh, life you've lived uh, so far. And um, we're gonna talk to our um, our uh, our viewers today about that. Um, to, we're, I'm gonna let you tell your whole story, but we do know that you're a retired uh, Navy SEAL Team Six, a New York Times best-selling author, motivational speaker host of uh, the Surviving Man TV show, as, as along with some other sister shows with that, and also a uh, triathlete. So you've got a lot going on. Well, well thanks, Cole, and thanks for having me on the show. It's um, yeah. We just came back from uh, Belize, and we had a wonderful time out there on The Aggressor, putting on one of the shows called The yeah. All Stars. But yeah, I, I've, um, I've, I've been very much enjoyed the way I've been living my life, and um, I, I, it really came to a simple philosophy for me. I would just, um, as a young boy, I would even do it. I just picked something really, really difficult or very challenging to do, mm -hmm. like climb a mountain or do something. And I'd bring it way, way up here as a big lofty goal. And I call that a macro goal now. And then I just had it made a series of micro goals to reach that. And um, by doing, by living a life of that, leading it through that philosophy, I've been able to do what I've been wanting to do or wish to have done in a lifetime. You know, I've done over a thousand competitions and and written books and um, climbed big mountains and became a seal and and everything I did that I felt was challenging, it was accomplished because I had this macro goal, micro goal philosophy coupled with a mindset that you can do anything you put your mind toward. And um, and you mentioned I do talks. I do do talks, and 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 I talk to all types of people around the around the country. And basically, I think that philosophy would work for anybody: a piano player, a cook, a doctor, uh, whoever he the person might be. But pick some huge goal and a series of micro goals, small goals to reach up for it. But believe you can do it. And it sounds simple and all, but it really, really works. And, and I, I know it works. I, I'm, I'm proof that it does work. Mm -hmm. It's it's really interesting, and, and you and I have been talking before we started the recording, uh, getting to know each other, and that's it, a, a interesting um, uh, strategy. And it's 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 it definitely sounds like that could work. And you probably you know having small victories, getting all these micro goals checked off. You also were telling me about a, a personal philosophy of things you like to do every day. Tell us a little bit about that. I thought that was really interesting. You know, Cole. Um, since I was a seal, you know, and all seals get it, you know, like you get all these phone calls and people asking, how do you become a SEAL? Or my son wants to be a ranger. How should he train to be a ranger? Or any any challenging type of profession. Mm -hmm. And I usually would rattle on for a long time trying to come up with some answers to answer that question. But now I have it narrowed down to just four simple steps, just four things. I just had my grandson out here visiting who's nine years old. And we did these four steps every day and he loved it. And, um, and I've done it 
and I've talked to people who are in the 60s and 70s and now they do it. So really it works for any age. All, all you have to do is every day, get up and do something that makes yourself physically stronger. Maybe if you could do 15 push-ups a day before, today I'm doing 20, or today I'm going to CrossFit, or, or I'm going to my gym, or I'm gonna do you know 15 to 20 pull-ups. But every day, just do something that makes you stronger. Number two is every day do something to make yourself faster. For instance, if you like to run, you have to do some speed work and measure it to make sure you know you're going faster. Do fartleks, do hills, hill speed work. If you're a swimmer, do the same. If you're doing sit-ups and you can do say 80 sit-ups in two minutes, go for 85. Mm -hmm. um, if you park your car at the far end of the parking lot and you're trying to get to the building you're working, you know, maybe where you work, and it took you two and a half minutes to get there, try to do it in two minutes, 15 seconds. But every day, just do something to make yourself faster. More importantly than those two things, I believe, is get smarter every day. Read. The internet has so much information. If you want to be a SEAL, learn to shoot weapons, learn to dive, learn to parachute, learn to see these 90-plus country SEALs are operating in now. Learn what our military is doing. Um, if you want to be a firefighter, you can learn techniques of the job and parts of the job. So every day, do something to make yourself smarter. And then the most important is every day you get up, do something good for somebody. And you might just do something good for your neighbor. Uh, you might do something good for your wife or your husband or, or your mother, but just do something good for somebody. And as I told my grandson last week, if you do this every day and you start at 10 or 11 years old, when you go to selection and you want to go to SEAL training or you want to do anything challenging, you just might be the strongest person there the fastest, you may know more about that position than anybody else because you've done so much research because every day you got smarter and you're the person everybody wants on their team because you know to do good for other people and you might be the best teammates in that selection process line. That, that's what I believe. I really believe those four things are all you have to do. And, and the idea came to me because when I was a triathlete, the greatest triathlete in the world at the time, his name was Dave Scott, and he won. He was called the King of Kona. He he won Ironman all the time. And I asked him, I said, "Dave, how do you stay in such great shape?" He said, "Well, Don, the doctors are against this, but I do it. I work out every day." He told me that, and I went 21 years without a day off after he told me. Wow. Every every day I worked out, and I made sure it was at least a half hour workout. And there were two times I came close to not working out every day. Once I was on a flight to Australia in a military plane, cargo plane. So I was able to work out in back of the uh, plane. <laughs> and the other time was I was taking my parents to my sister's home who was having a baby. And the drive was taking over 24 hours. My parents thought I was a bit of a nut anyways. I said, mom, dad, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I got to pull over this rest area just to do my exercise before the 24-hour period. But in 21 years, <laughs> only two times. Why? Wow. Uh, didn't work out so wow. you can get faster stronger and smarter every day and you can definitely do something good for somebody every day as well that's that's a great philosophy and um and definitely one that i respect a ton that's very interesting especially to helping someone every single day too because that that doesn't just make you just you talk about getting better at all these different aspects but it also makes you a better person and uh more respected in in, in the field that you're in 
But uh, that's that's really interesting. I know you today you said you're calling from the uh, the uh, up in Virginia and the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you were born, um, kind of the hobbies you got into as a kid, and what what made you want to become a become a Navy SEAL. Well, I, I grew up up in New England, and I lived all throughout New England. I love New England, and I love the mountains, the ocean, the rivers, the trails, everything up there. But I I, uh, I had a lot of energy. And um, a bit of it was kind of reckless energy, you know, <laughs> but I needed to focus that energy somewhere good. And I knew that. And um, so I was going to be a police officer. I thought I would be, I'd be able to chase the bad guys and all that thing, but from watching TV. And, um, and I went to college to, in criminal justice and the professor said, well, anybody here who wants to be a police officer and chase down the bad guys, getting in all these chases. It's exciting, it's adventurous. You probably thought all about that because of all the TV shows you watch. However, yeah. it's not really the case. So I kind of was thinking, oh, well, shoot, what next? And my father was a real patriot. Uh, when we were attacked by the Japanese, World War II, Pearl Harbor was attacked. He and his two brothers and his sister, all four of them joined the war, You know, joined the military to, to be part of the war effort. So my grandparents had four stars in their window. And my father's a real patriot. And every time a veteran or military personnel would get hurt, would say prayers for that veteran or that military personnel. He, he really instilled patriotism in us all. Hmm. I decided I wanted to become a, a Marine. And I loved physical fitness. Um, seventh grade onward, I, I knew I was going to go towards something very physical as a, in a career. And so when I went to the Marine recruiter, I probably went to the only Marine recruiter that wouldn't impress a young teenager. He just wasn't that, he probably looked at me like, who's this young guy? He's not gonna ever make it. So then I went next door to the Navy recruiter and he told me about SEAL training and BUDS. And back then it wasn't known about like it is now. It wasn't even discussed. It was kind of a quiet, secretive little thing. And, uh, when I saw that video of all these guys running and doing pull-ups and push-ups and sit-ups and running in the soft sand and shooting and parachuting and diving and going all over the world and being part of the toughest military unit in the world, I knew that second, that's what I wanted. Hmm. And I was very, very fortunate to have found that. And, um, and, and I'm very fortunate to have done that as a career. It, it, it made my life very special for me. To, to be in the SEAL community for 21 years. And I served at SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, and SEAL Team 6, which are the three places I wanted to serve. And I've stayed active in the community ever since. And um, so I love the military. I know we need a strong military. And, um, and I love being part of the SEALs. I love doing things, doing good for somebody. I love it when I can help somebody come through the process of mm -hmm. going through SEAL training or training to become a SEAL. Interesting. And just so we understand, how, how exactly are the, the teams different, the SEAL Team 6? And and I know there's I researched a little bit on the Delta Force. And how's that a little bit different than just being a regular Navy SEAL? Okay, so it, it used to be two SEAL teams, SEAL Teams 1 and 2. SEAL Team 1 was to cover the west side of the world. SEAL Team 2 was the east side of the world. Hmm. And that's why I want to serve at SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2. And then um, what they had was Richard Marcinko, a commander who wanted to have a, a maritime counter-terrorist team 
that the public really didn't know about. And they had long hair. They didn't look like SEALs. They looked like civilians. And they had a lot, a lot of excess training other than what the other SEALs got. And you had to be at SEAL Team 1 or SEAL Team 2 for quite some time and prove yourself and get good evaluations and things. And then if SEAL Team 6 was interested in you, they could just pluck you away from the team and then you go to SEAL Team 6. Mm. So uh, SEAL Team 6 had a worldwide capability. And um, I never knew why any SEAL would not want to be at 6. But uh, so they had SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2. And they also had underwater demolition teams back then. And this is 82 and prior. And the underwater demolition teams had a couple of them in, the, in San Diego, Coronado, and a couple of them in Virginia. And um, in 82, 83 timeframe, there was a transition that these underwater demolition teams that were the same people who graduated from BUD SEAL training, you either got assigned to an underwater demolition team or a SEAL team. Everybody wanted to go to a SEAL team, but you still got assigned either underwater demolition team or a SEAL team. So what happened 82, 83 timeframe is they took all the underwater demolition teams and commissioned them as SEAL teams. So then you had all the odd numbers on the West Coast, SEAL team one, SEAL team three, and SEAL team five on the West Coast, now the SEAL team seven. And on the East Coast, SEAL team two, SEAL team four, and SEAL team eight, and there will be in SEAL team 10, all the East Coast teams are even, all the West Coast teams are odd. But SEAL Team 6, when that came about, there was only a SEAL Team 1 and a SEAL Team 2. What Richard Marcinko did, the founder of SEAL Team 6, the first commanding officer, he wanted to confuse the Russians. So he called mm. it SEAL Team 6. Okay, cool. Six teams, which we had two. And um, <laughs> so that's how that all came about. And then my goal, my goal was SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, and eventually, hopefully, get to SEAL Team 6. I went to SEAL Team 6 twice, once as an enlisted man, and then I got commissioned as a warrant officer, then I went back as a warrant officer. That's where I retired from. And what's the training like to, to become something like that? It seems pretty grueling. And was there ever a time that you thought, this is too much, I can't handle it, or you were all in from day one? No, I never, ever thought, I knew I wasn't going to quit. I was positive about that. I, I learned somehow early on you look at the mountain, you look at the SEAL training, you look at the SEAL instructors, it doesn't matter what that big, big challenge is. You stay humble and, and you learn everything you can. And I would learn to look at these challenges as I welcome the pain. I expect this to be a lot of pain. If it's too much pain, I'll simply pass out, but I will not quit. Lots of people have done this before me. I know I can do it. I know I can do it. So BUDS is Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School, and it's the toughest military training in the world. And it's a seven-month course, six-plus months, out in Coronado, California. And, um, you know, hundreds of people start, and usually you graduate with 20 or so people. And, um, and you graduate, it's like the proudest day of your life. And then you get assigned to a SEAL team. Then the training goes on for another year. And if you eventually get to six, then the training starts all over again. You go to advanced SEAL training. Um, it's called Green Team. And then you uh, get to assigned to an uh, assault squadron. So the training really never, ever stops. Uh, if you're not at war, you're training, period. There's, there's never any downtime. Okay. Interesting. 
Well, what would you say are some of the most significant lessons you've picked up from serving? Well, um, I would say that when you're surrounded by a bunch of highly motivated individuals and uh, they have that don't quit attitude or I can do anything, it's really, it's really such a pleasure being around these people because you take these tasks on or these missions and these operations and you know you're going to be okay. There's never a doubt in your mind it's not going to work out. I was captured and um, we got food poisoning. It was really, really bad. We all got food poisoning in Egypt and we'd eaten these frogs and these snakes and these poisonous snakes and you'd kill the snake or the frog on your boot. And if it's a venomous snake, you peel back the skin with your mouth and you take out the venom sacks and you eat it. So we got food poisoning right before this mission. And there were four of us on the mission. And um, we flew down to a country that, you know, I won't say the country, but it was a, a war zone. And we had to hide out for three days to get a reconnaissance of the shipyard and of the airport. And we want to get all the air traffic coming in and out and all the ships and ship movement coming in and out. And we were sick. And uh, we jumped in, we parachuted in with a boat. And the four of us were sick. I was a medic, so I was able to try to treat the other three guys. And we just laid up and watched the beach for a while, make sure there wasn't any act, any me activity. And then my buddy and I, we got off the boat, we swam to shore. We were scared to death because there were sharks everywhere. The Arabs, what they were doing when they were killing the camels, they'd kill all these camels and they'd cut the intestines out and put them in the water. And that's the water we were diving in and jumping in that night. So, and they said, stay out of the water. They didn't know what our mission was, but the intel people said, stay out of the water, but we had to be in the water. We parachuted into the water. We swam to the, you know, to the beach. And we're trying to find a place where we can hide out for three days. And it was a little finger of land with water on three sides of it. And the airport was over here to the right and the uh, shipping facility was over here to the left. There wasn't a place really to hide. So we decided to dig a hole. And the four of us dug a hole and we tuck our rucksacks and our weapons in that hole. It was sick as can be. And we put camouflage netting over our heads. So it looked like desert camouflage netting over our heads. And we stayed in this hole for three days. Uh, we all had diarrhea and we're all vomiting and you couldn't get out of the hole. Um, and at high tide, the hole filled with water. So we're pretty much in our own sewage for three days, as sick as can be. Wow. And we're watching, doing all our intel gathering that we're supposed to be doing on a reconnaissance, doing all the intel gathering for the airport and the shipyard. I tried to get IVs and the other three guys. I got them in eventually. They tried getting one into me and they just put like eight holes in my skin and they all got infected being in that sewage. Oh my God. And we had long hair and beards and we're just sitting there. We had goggles on because the sandstorm was so bad. The sand was coming in inside the cargo netting and filling our nose with, and ears with sand. So we're just sitting there for three days in our sewage. And um, this is to the point where when you're around guys like this, you know, you know you're going to be okay. Even during this situation, I never had a thought in my mind this wasn't going to work out. But we got captured on the third night, and a guy walking down through the desert, and his eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger as he saw something that was disrupting the desert sand. It was our cargo net, uh, just our sand-covered cargo net, and he got closer and closer, and he put his hands up and he backed off and he ran off. 
And you have rules of engagement. People say, why didn't you shoot him? Why didn't you tie him up? Because the rules of engagement, he wasn't a threat. He walked up to us, saw us and walked away. But we knew he was going to get reinforcements. So we tried to get out of there as quickly as we could, as sick as we were. And basically 14 or so guys came up over the hill, scared to death with their fingers on the trigger, pointing to our chest and our heads. And they were motioning to us to get down on the ground so they can shoot us in the backs. And we said, no, we're not gonna do that. This is all in broken English. We're gonna get back in this boat that we buried and we're going back home. We're going back home. They go, down, 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 we shoot you in the backs. I said, no, we're going back home. And this, they got an interpreter from the village the hell is at gunpoint overnight. And uh, the, the interpreter came back, they said, yeah, you trespass, we're gonna uh, shoot you in the backs. We said, no, we're gonna go in that rubber boat, we're going back home where we came from. They let us go. They let us go, we're as sick as can be. We went out to sea, we sat there for a night, came back around and finished the mission. And um, we were all as sick as could be. But what I really, really, really appreciate about that experience is nobody ever complained. Nobody ever said, I should have been a pilot. I should have been a cook. I should have been something else. We all loved what we were doing and we didn't think it was bad. And we knew we were going to get out because we had the mindset, what we call combat mindset. We had the mindset, we know we're going to get out of this. And being around a bunch of guys who think like that day in and day out, it's a privilege. It's and and it's helped me in every aspect of my life since then because um, you know work doesn't get that bad. You know, in most other jobs, you know, most other jobs, some jobs it gets worse. I know, but um, but that's what I mean. I just uh, really, really appreciate the mindset, the collective mindset you have in the SEAL community. I was very disappointed when I got out of the SEALs, and I became a civilian, and then I realized. People don't try that hard. They, they, they set goals low. They reach those low set goals and they go home and they're happy with it. Not everybody, but a lot of people I was realizing, boy, that's, that's a tragedy. To set your goals that low, I mean, you're never going to get a fulfilling life. You're never going to achieve all you could achieve. You set goals low and reach them and are happy with that. That's never set in to me as something acceptable. So you'll never reach your full potential if you're, if you're trained to think like that. So I always thought, even before becoming a SEAL, to set your goals high, really set them high. And sometimes you don't make them, but if you have micro goals that reach all the way up to that macro goal, and maybe you don't make every macro goal, but at least you're going to be a much further along in the process than if you didn't have that plan. And um, that's pretty much simplified and and how I was able to accomplish the things I accomplished in my lifetime. It's a fascinating story. And um, it's also you talked about you touched on the community. I, I imagine you guys have been through a lot of stuff and you've got some guys that you've you've had lifelong friendships with, I'm imagining, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a week doesn't go by where I see a seal has been killed or who's died, and I keep track of all these people. Mm-hmm. And what what really really bothers me now is, um, you know, when I was in, I have to say, and I'm not trying to sound humble or modest or anything, I had a very easy career compared to 
the guys nowadays because you know they just fought two back-to-back wars so if you came in when you were say um 19 years old 20 years old and you retired at 40 or 42 there's a good chance you spent your whole adult life fighting in wars and that's never happened in our history before in the united states and and i don't think a lot of people realize how bad that is you know we didn't have two back-to-back wars when i was in we had conflicts all over the place but never back-to-back wars and now you know, a lot, so many people have PTSD and things like that. But I have really good friends who living in cars now can't finish a sentence and are afraid of being around people because of all the trauma that's gone on with the head and the brain and the concussions, the micro concussions. And um, I, I just really that because what, what that does, that can do attitude is you say yes to every mission. You take the hardest training, the hardest ops there are. And you do this over and over and over. And what it does to the psyche and to the, the physical aspect of the brain um, is something people didn't realize beforehand. But that attitude is, let me do it. I'll do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. But now the guys are, you know, a lot of them are suffering pretty badly. That, that's that, that's heartbreaking to see that. It definitely. Definitely. And that's, I don't mean to say just SEALs. That's uh, military-wide, of course. Right, right, right. Well, um, tell, tell, you know, uh, we mentioned you're a New York Times bestselling author. You've written 22 books. Uh, tell us about what made you want to start doing that and, and how that's how that started and, and how it's going. I barely graduated high school English. My my English teacher would be rolling over in her grave if she knew I was <laughs> even read a book. <laughs> but um, I, I got very much involved in the sport of adventure racing. I was racing all over the world. And these races were 500, 600 miles long, 10 days long. You pushed yourself hard, in my opinion, until you bled, passed out, or hallucinated. It was very, very, very difficult. And you're in the, the mountains in the Himalayas or Ecuador, or, or you're in the desert, or you're in the jungle somewhere. And you're going four or five people, biking, swimming, running, climbing, paddling, nonstop for 10 days. It's the hardest thing I ever did in my life. But I was I was so into it. I, I had an adventure racing academy where I taught people how to do it. I raced the biggest races in the world. And I was putting on races all over the world. And um, I got the nickname, the godfather of adventure racing, because I just went into this 100%. Right after I got out of the SEAL teams, I needed something that was very exciting. And uh, I loved it. Oh, my God, I loved it. So um, that's what I did. And... Um, a politician came up to me, a Virginia politician. He said, Don, you're competing at the highest levels. You put on these events and you teach people. You're the only one who does it. Why don't you write a book on adventure racing? I said, I don't want to write a book. He said, come on, you got to write a book. You're the only one who does all this. I said, no, Quentin, his name's Quentin Kidd. I, I don't want to write a book. So he said, how about if I get someone else to write it? You just record everything you want to record in the book. So I did that, and that became the first book of adventure racing, the complete guide to adventure racing. Mm. Then I went to work for the government, teaching shooting and tactics and uh, things how to keep leaders alive around the world, you know, presidents, prime ministers. And I had so much information that I've collected over the years 
on pistols, shotguns, long guns, tactics. And my boss came up to me and said, Don, why don't you write a book on shooting? You have so much information. I said, no, I don't want to write another book. No, no, no way. <laughs> Come on, you got all the information here. So finally, I put it all together in chapters and the publisher said, yeah, we'll publish it, but you have way too much information. Can you get rid of about two thirds of it? So I took out the long gun and the shotgun stuff and kept the pistol, called it the modern day gunslinger. And that was a big book for cops and, on, and home defense people and military. So I never really set out to write a book. It was always a little pressure. Uh, when bin Laden was killed, I was asked, they said, you were a SEAL Team 6 training officer and SEAL Team 6 killed bin Laden. How did that happen? I said, no, I, I don't talk about that. You can't talk about a lot of things. You get out of the military, secrets get kept at the gate and the gate closes. You don't talk about them anymore. So finally, one publisher says, why don't you just give us your bio, your sports bio and your military bio and tell us what you can talk about with your time in SEALs. I said, I can do that as long as it's unclassified. And that was called Inside SEAL Team 6. And that was the one that became a New York Times bestseller. So every, and then I wrote a series of books and then the Navy called and they said, the Army's got a survival manual, Coast Guard has one, the Marines have one, the Air Force has one, SEALs don't have a survival manual. Would you write a survival manual? I said, there is no way. They said, well, we'll pay you up front and we'll give you a year extra time to do it. And I said, okay. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> with that answer, but that, that went on for 22 books, basically. Wow. So <laughs> I learned so much doing it too. It was fun. So if so if someone comes to you to write a 23rd book, what are you gonna do? <laughs> it would have well, I really don't know anything else to talk about. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I know is in books now. I, I really don't have anything else to talk about. Well, tell me tell me about how the uh the TV show Surviving Man got started. Well, and tell tell the viewers who have not seen it kind of the, the concept of the show. Well, I have a good friend, Bob Sifel and his wife, Tolly, um, I've known them for many years and I used to do product endorsement for Bob. And um, we just became really good friends. He, he grew up where I, you know, up in New England and we're about the same age and we just hit it off as friends. Mm -hmm. And um, and he knew I was a shooter and I was athletic. And he said, someday I wanna have a TV show where you're training people. I said, yeah, yeah, Bob, we'll do that. We'll do that, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it'll never happen. but um. And then a couple of years ago, he said, you know, we got a big sponsor and we want to create a TV show and we want to call it Surviving Man, M-A-N-N, my last name. I said, oh, I wasn't sure where this was going to go, but it has been one of the most exciting things I've ever done. I love doing this show. And um, so what we do is I take elements of SEAL training, elements of survival training, elements of obstacle course racing and elements of adventure racing and combine them. And um, every show is different. But the first year we had somewhere between 500 and 600 people enter to try to be a, a contestant on the show. Mm -hmm. This was in Vegas. And uh, the selection group picked 32 people. And, and, I, and they all thought they were coming in uh, to do Surviving Man, a reality TV show. And I come in with a helicopter and I, and I come up and I meet these 32 folks. I said, for all you people here who are thinking you're just going to do some survival, you know, reality TV show, it's not the case. The reason you're here, and we couldn't broadcast this or promote this, we need 32 tough Americans here because the government doesn't want anything to do with this mission. 
The military doesn't want anything to do with it. But there is a guy who's held in captivity right now, and he's going to be executed at the end of the week. And he's got a lot of intel we need. So we're here, and this was all you know, made up, of course. We're here to put you through a selection course. And that selection course will figure out who's going to be on the mission, who's not going to be on the mission, and where you're going to be on the mission. Because by the end of the, this week, we have to go get this guy and free him from captivity. Hmm. And so the selection course had a lot to do with shooting pistols, long guns, shotguns, uh, tactics in and out of a building, clearing a building, uh, lots of rope work, lots of PT. The physical training, the PT was very, very difficult. And, um, and not everyone finished, you know, I, I actually, I kept doing it till the last one dropped. And so everybody, and, and some of it was more difficult than we do in BUDS training. And, and that's how I like it. Uh, I used to have a philosophy, if you're not bleeding, passing out, or, or hallucinating, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. I don't bring it to that level anymore for myself or others. But right before I reach that level, I back off. And, um, and I used to always go over that level thinking, I don't want to leave anything on the table. I got to push myself, push myself, push others. But now right before that level, I'll back off. So these 32 competitors, right before anyone got to that level, I backed off. Every show, I'm trying to make the physical part a little more challenging. And when we're in Belize, when we're in Belize of the Belize Aggressor 3, uh, that was my favorite of all the shows. I mean, we were on a, a dive boat in the Belize waters, diving, doing these long swims into the current, against the current, doing underwater swims, underwater dives, night dives in the middle of the night and doing uh, things that we learned in SEAL Team. And, and we just pushed it more and more every single show uh, to a more challenging and, and a, a big variety of different exercises like that we didn't do the show before. So it has been a blast. And, and then the co-hosts I've been working with, Randy Couture, MMA legend. Yeah. What, what a, not only is he an MMA legend, it's about the nicest man you've ever want to meet. And hmm. he's such a patriot. He does so much for the veteran community. And then the second year we had Sheriff Lamb who's running for Senator right now in Arizona. He's always on the news. You'll see Sheriff Lamb quite a bit. Another man, he's got a great, great career. So charismatic, such a good person, genuinely a good person. And the, one of the greatest patriots you'd ever want to meet. And in Belize, Carrie Kasem, I used to listen to her father all the time, Casey Kasem, America's Oh, yeah. yeah, she yeah. was my co-host. What a beautiful woman she is inside and out. She's, you know, a Grammy Award winner. And uh, she's just a remarkably nice person. And her boyfriend, and I'm a music lover, her boyfriend, Ash, was with us. He was lead guitar player for Guns N' Roses for eight or nine years. Wow. And have those two with me, and she is my co-host. It was just amazing. So the show has been a blast. So we have Surviving Man that happens every year. We're, mm -hmm. we're getting ready for season three. But from that, two other shows popped up. And one was called The Aftermath. And they'll talk to the competitors and saying, well, what was it like being on Surviving Man? Mm -hmm. And it's The Aftermath after the show is done. And then The All-Stars is what we did in Belize. It's the, uh, the top three competitors from the previous Surviving Man come out and we compete and push them hard for missions and training 
more so than what they got in Surviving Man. And uh, so it has been a real blast. And, and, and also every day, everybody's getting stronger, faster and smarter. And we're all doing good for each other because you'll see someone struggling, struggling or falling down and not being able to make it the run. People stop and pick them up, even though they're being in a, they're in a competition, they'll stop and help each other out as an example. So we're always pushing those four things, stronger, faster, smarter, and do good for people ahead of your own. You know, you might get first place if you didn't stop to help somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's all come full, full circle. My career as a SEAL, adventure racer, obstacle course racer, trainer, motivator, I try to encapsulate all the things I've learned in those communities that pertain to what we can do on a show to make it so much more difficult than just a triathlon or a survival event or, you know, a triathlon, anything like that. This is, this is uh, fully encompassing of all those other elements, which, which I love about it. That's what I love about it. It's a very interesting show. I've only seen a few episodes, but I'm actually already hooked. I'm going to take it back home and start watching it with my wife. But um, yeah, so where to watch Sundays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Pursuit Channel, on demand on the American Stories apps and AmericanStories.tv. Uh, the American Stories has apps on all major devices, Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, iOS, and Android. And um, as a promotion, Surviving Man Season 3 is in pre-production. We'll be announcing a contest to win a trip to be on set during the filming. So people can register for the free account at americanstories.tv to be the first to be on the list for when the contest is announced. That's pretty cool. That's right. Yeah, it's really growing. It's um, American Stories has a lot of other shows as well. I'm, I'm only involved in, in Surviving Man, the All-Stars and the Aftermath, but um, Bob's shows on American Stories, they're all growing. Surviving Man just got a big, big boost. It's being all broadcast all over Canada now too. And uh, it's 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 being uh, widely accepted in the TV world. <laughs> well, that's great. And, and this has been such an interesting call. I feel like I could talk to you all day uh, and hear more stuff. But uh, as we're starting to wrap it up, what would what would you say to someone who's interested, in maybe uh, joining the military or Navy SEALs, particular? And, and you know, let's keep it in a broad sense. What would you say to someone that's interested in joining the military, armed forces? Well, to check out all the services, I, I think uh, we, we need people in the military. Our recruiting's down lower than ever right now. And um, really, you know, the Air Force is, Air Force and Coast Guard might be a little less uh, physical than the Marines or the SEALs or the Army. But um, if you like the water, you know, think of Coast Guard and think of Navy. Mm -hmm. And if you want something tough, think of Marines or maybe different units in the Army or SEALs. But there are some good, I can't say enough good about the military. Basically, if you join the military, you have a career for 20 years if you want it. Mm -hmm. And you, you get all these skills. And, and mil in the military, there are, there are exceptions, I know. But basically, anything you want to be, you could almost steer the ship you know, um, to that direction. If you really, really want to be in the medical field, you can sign up and say, yeah, I want to join the military, but I want to be in the medical field. And you can get put on that path. To me, the military's, I hate to say the word easy, but it's easier than not having a path to go on in the civilian world. Military, you get paid every other week. I mean, you know what's right, you know what's wrong, you know what you mm -hmm. have to do to get promoted, and you know you're defending your country, and you're getting the skills you want, and the ladder goes up high 
You know, your ladder goes up high. You put that ladder on the wall. This ladder goes up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's not the case in a lot of civilian jobs. So I, I would definitely recommend anybody looking at the military. And I'm happy. I most every week I get phone calls and emails and texts. I, I'll help anybody out I can just by talking with them. But um, and so do so a lot of other military guys will do the same thing. We have to give back. And that's trying to find good people and help good people get in the military or at least learn more about it if they want to. That's great. It goes back to your philosophy philosophy yeah. of helping someone every day. So, well, sir, it's been awesome. It's been a privilege to speak with you today. And um, I hate we're running out of time. Like I said, I could talk to you all day, but I appreciate you stopping by and chatting with us. Thank you, Cole. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you, guys. And I uh, appreciate you guys listening. Be sure to go check out Surviving Man on AmericanStories.tv. Take care. Thank you, Cole. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the Inspired by Adventure podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.